Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. If you're looking to throw some optics on your turkey gun this spring, look no further than the Vortex Defender ST. This is the red dot we're going to be running this season. We're excited about it. This thing's built like a tank, super lightweight, super long battery life, everything you need in a good turkey red dot. And if you want to get a discount on that red dot or any other Vortex Optic, go to eurooptic.com and use the code SGN10 to get a discount. That's eurooptic.com, code SGN10. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar. May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you. And we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Today, we got a return guest. He was on just a couple weeks ago on episode 530. We got a lot of good feedback from it, and uh, we we hinted at his uh, his late season tactics. And we're here today to talk about those late season tactics. So today, we got Mr. Jacob Leishen back on. Jacob, what's up, man? Uh, I'm back. I'm uh, I'm ready ready to get in the woods. I'm excited and feel good, man. I was excited to see all the positives come out of the last uh, episode and, and all the good feedback. And, um, you know, thanks to everybody who listened and, uh, you know, gave me their ear for a minute. So appreciate that. Nice. Yes, sir. And I think this episode's dropping on Christmas day. So Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas, Jacob. (laughs) Merry Christmas, both Jacobs. Yeah. Jacob squared. Yeah. We're Jacob squared right now. Yeah, dude. Uh, Outnumbered. Merry Christmas. Yeah. (laughs) Myers, Myers, how are you doing? You kind of look like uh, that Chris Kringle character, you know, with the red beard and the little animated thing. You kind of look like that guy. I'll take it as a compliment, okay? <laughs> a backhanded compliment. Uh, no, Jacob, I'm super excited to have you back on the podcast because this is a conversation I've been wanting to have. And when you were talking to us on the last episode about a lot of your success, late season secondary rut action, when a lot of guys are kind of getting out of the woods, they're not really grinding it out after the rut. You know, if they killed a buck, great. They still had another tag in their pocket. Or maybe they didn't kill anything. They might just hang it up for the year. And in this episode, I really want to talk about, like, mastering that late season. So, you know, if someone gets to that point, you know, I, I, I mentioned this before we start recording. I really think about a lot of our Arkansas listeners um, who have such a long bow season. I mean, they go to February 28th um, and, you know, their rut might have happened, you know, you know, in November or parts of the state, you know, all the way through, you know, mid-December. And then afterwards, they're trying to figure out, like, what to do now. And I really want to kind of highlight how people like that, but also people in other states as well, listeners and audience members in other states, can master and understand late season when targeting specific bucks. And actually, if you do it right, which we're going to learn on this episode, maybe not how easy it could be, but just like how patternable some of these bucks can get, especially when you're targeting a specific deer and be able to go in there. And again, as I think Andre DeQuista talks about, surgically remove him from the deer herd. So um, we're going to talk a lot about that in this episode. But Jake, to kind of kick us off, you know, last time we had John, we talked a lot about like backtrack and sign and everything and how, you know, that really works for you, especially, you know, pre-rut going up into the rut. And then during the rut itself, it's kind of, you know, mayhem, you know, the deer aren't necessarily doing exactly with the signs showing all the time but when it comes to late season how long ago did you start figuring out a pattern and a strategy to start having success kind of what most guys would say late season you know post rut and was it something that clicked for you pretty quickly or did it take multiple years before you started figuring out a strategy and a system that worked best for you it uh it took multiple years um i I don't want to sit here and claim to be like the the you know, the end all be all of late season hunters, I'm learning just like everybody else is. So I have really started hammering on late season the last three to four years um, and, and finding more and more deer in that window, you know, largely because that's when I'm home to, to hunt, you know, I'm home because from work, I'm, you know, I'm in and around the family, I'm here, I'm not traveling as much. So, you know, I, I don't typically get in the home state, the time to hunt, um, you know, in the peak windows, like a lot of our windows, uh, October 28th through November 3rd, um, November 12th through the 16th, like those are awesome windows in North Carolina to be in the woods. Like I would tell everybody, if you had to pick two windows, that's when I would be in the woods. Um, but I don't get that chance because we're traveling so much. So, you know, late season has kind of almost been like force of, you know, you, you kind of have to get better at it if you want a chance to be successful at all. 
Um, so, you know, and I think that started what really helped me um, was starting to deploy trail cameras on a lot of the public that I was frequenting where I was finding deer and then really starting to look at the landscape like a puzzle uh, from an entire calendar year perspective, not just from like um, I, I not just from like a, what I'm seeing in the moment, which is still applicable. But even more so, I think late season draws a lot on your annual data uh, and on what you're seeing season over season over season. So for me, success in late season is dependent upon my knowledge of that property year after year after year after year, um, which is why I feel like the longer you build a relationship with the property, the more likely you are to be able to capitalize on late season movement versus like, I, I would almost tell somebody um, and we can kind of start from the top here, but it, it's like, I would almost tell somebody that if you're, let's say you're just walking into the woods right now um, and you have no relationship with the property, you're better off to just spend your time scouting. Like you should be scouting like 70 to 80% of your time, in my opinion. And, and then throw in sits that are as targeted as you can make them. Um, but, but really trying to lean on what data, you know, historically, if you don't know a property and don't know that it does that, it, you know, if you don't know a property, it might not be the best late season property to dive into. Um, you know, and I, I do think that there's a strategy that you can put in place to be more successful. If you're, if you're just coming at it cold and the first time you're picking up your bow or your gun is to walk on a property on December 15th or February 15th or whatever, depending on your season, I think that you can do that. It's just going to take a lot of walking. Got you. Now also, uh, and we're going to break down late season, a couple different aspects here, like true late season, you know, post rut, getting the last few weeks of your season, uh, you know, a month out past the rut itself. But also one thing you mentioned to us before we start recording or recording is the importance of trail camera data when it comes to identifying secondary rut activity, uh, where yep. maybe some does or doe fawns hadn't been bred and you start getting another little bump of activity from some of these mature bucks seeking does, you know, 28 days plus later than when the actual rut probably took place on some of these properties. Um, and I'd love to kind of start out with that a little bit. What, how has that been a factor for you and how have you been able to identify secondary rut activity on a specific property when implementing trail cameras, but also scouting? Oh man. Okay. So I think that the best way to approach that is, is to explain, uh, for, for those who are listening and might not know, like, I, I think that you have in states like North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama, Georgia, a lot of our deep South states uh, or Southeastern states, depending on whether you consider the Carolinas deep South, we have a large deer population here. Alabama is the same way. So what happens is I think a lot of our mature bucks, they, when, when a deer gets to four and a half or five and a half years old, uh, not only is he smart at avoiding pressure, but he's also learned what does come in and come in the earliest so he's going to take the you know the cream of the crop for perspective he's going to take the first dose or he's going to be structuring himself in late october or early november to get the very first dose that come in and then i i typically feel like that they kind of lay low when all the little bucks are just hammering in my opinion you may get one that gets riled up and chases pretty hard but the reality is they don't have to because we have such a high doe population um, I, I think a lot of our mature deer can lock down in the thicket. They can, you know, get themselves in a position where they pretty much can just pick and choose when they do and don't want to breed, which makes conventional rut hunting here difficult. So you usually get a pop in late October. 
And then it kind of dies off for me, at least on, on like mature buck travel. Uh, at least when I look at my trail camera data and my experience and time personally in the woods until we get into late season. And, you know, you have three windows, you know, in my opinion, in, in, in late season that you can kind of plan around. Um, and, and I'll talk about this from the standpoint of a conventional rut window. Cause our, 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 our rut time frame here in North Carolina is pretty standard, um, you know, October, November, December. Um, but you know, if you're in Alabama, just kind of fast forward that to your applicable month. So for, for here, our rut starts to wind down at least where I hunt right after Thanksgiving, between Thanksgiving and December 1st. That's usually when you start to see things fall off. And from that first to the 15th window, it kind of gets a little sluggish. Um, you may see some little dose, some little bucks pushing does here or there, but typically your does start to group back up. Um, they kind of get more conventional on their like food to bedding paths again. Um, you know, you start to see like just, I think less consistent buck movement, less scrape activity specifically. So if you're a guy who's in the woods and you're looking for, Hey, I need to be hunting sign. Um, it's going to be a lot more difficult in my opinion to to find really aggressively worked scrapes or hunt bucks on scrapes in that window. Cause they just, they're not really interested in that, you know, in my experience in the late season, especially in high doe density areas. Um, now, as we kind of start to trickle towards that middle of the month, which puts us about 30 days from when all of those does were in estrus in mid-November, we start to see deer coming back into estrus, specifically either does that weren't bred due to the population density or, um, you know, young does that were born that year. Um, so your yearlings, your fawns, your year and a half olds, or any deer that didn't get bred, um, that window for me is December 15th to the 21st. So. Uh, actually right in the heat of when we're recording this. So that that is like prime time for you to catch, in my opinion, a late season buck that's out that's out chasing. Um, I think if if there's a time to hunt with a rifle in December, it's then, <laughs> um, you know, in my opinion. So, you know, and, and even then you're not hunting specifically sign again. Um, you're hunting historical data and you're hunting specific buck travel patterns uh, that relate to doe bedding areas. So those, those does, especially when a new doe comes in, she may go off and work a nearby hub scrape. Um, so understanding like what your historical sign is in a general area. So like, let's say, you know, that year over year, there's one main scrape, not like all these, um, satellite scrapes that tend to pop up in an area. There's a big scrape that you monitor or that you've been on that doe may hit that. You may see bucks checking that. But for the most part, it's going to be a lot more difficult to find them on sign. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. I think it's just kind of like guiding us through that that kind of late rut or that post rut to second rut phase, uh, which I think is probably what people need to take the most note of in this time of the year. Um, just because if you're a rut hunter, if your goal is to shoot one while they're out chasing, that's that's what I think you need to be planning for is looking for those, for those high doe density areas where bucks are going to be checking for deer coming back in. Now, if you're like me, that December 21st to January 1st window is my favorite because we start talking about bucks at bachelor backup. Um, so that's like, in my opinion, that's prime time to kill one because they, I tend to see that they revert back to a lot of their early season patterns then. 
um, in, in that in super late season, they'll bachelor back up. And as long as that early season pattern coincides with really good, significant security cover, they'll just go back to it. Um, you know, if it's in proximity to, you know, just the things that they need, food, water, et cetera. Interesting. I've actually, I've actually seen that here in Alabama. Uh, we have a local place that we hunt. We talk about it all the time. And our rut is like right now, I've, in, in my opinion, we're kind of getting to the back end of the rut on the, on the particular place I'm thinking of. So we got a, a mid-December rut. And by January 15th, for my whole life that I've hunted this place, it, it gets tough, man. It's like they go in a hole in the ground. You can't find any deer. And a couple of years back, they extended our season to February 10th. And I remember it was the first year that they did that. And I was out, I was hunting down in some hell hole, you know, where I normally hunt. And I, when I was walking out, I had to walk past a food plot. And I was coming out and it was still, you know, when you get out, it's on a power line too. And it's still kind of light, you know, it's after legal light, but you can still kind of see, especially when you get up on a ridge and it's kind of open. And I pop over this ridge and there's this food plot there and there's five bucks standing in that food plot. And two of them were like good bucks, like really good bucks for the area. And they were sparring and just kind of acting exactly how they would be acting in like September. And uh, I was just, it kind of got me thinking, I'm like, man, like we can't we can't buy a deer like we can't find them at all this time of year and i'm walking out and here they are in a freaking food plot 35 feet off the road you know i'm like maybe we're thinking a little bit too hard about this uh and so i've never really had any success that time of year at all so i'm like i'm really interested in in this conversation and specifically i'm i don't know what jacob's in i'm really interested in that bachelored up time frame uh, one, cause that's your favorite, but also because, you know, it gives me something I can relate to cause I am pretty confident in early season during that same time. So, uh, like what kind of led you to, to figure this out? I mean, what, what was the process like where you started putting this all together? So, uh, we'll start, I think that the best, the best way to talk about that is to talk about late season strategy as a whole. So, the, the way I approach late season now is um, I'm really big on running cameras for annual patterns and only checking them once or twice a season, um, partially because I'm, I'm gone a lot, um, but also just because I think it's more valuable that you collect large sections of data and then look at that data and determine what deer are doing year over year over year. So uh, to go back to August uh, and in J- July and August, I'm setting cameras then, uh, even in places where I not necessarily, I'm not even super confident the deer are using it at that moment in time, but I think they'll revert to that in late season, either because of pressure, um, you know, or, you know, for whatever specific reason, if that's the only spot on a property that has enough cover for them to be there or whatever, I'm going to be looking for late season, um, like trails and places to set that stuff on. I really am not running my cameras almost i almost never run them on scrapes every now and then i'll put one on it it's almost always on path to travel um in and out of security cover so for example uh a lot of late season stuff i'm going to identify in i guess to take another step back so january february march when you're doing your late season scouting or when you're out turkey hunting um, you know, in March, April, May, you're identifying trails and patterns that those deer have reverted back to in late season. They haven't, in my opinion, shifted to a spring or summer pattern yet. A lot of the time they're still on that late season pattern. 
So if you think about where you're finding a ton of your sign when you're turkey hunting, or if you think about when you're finding a ton of your sign late season, it a lot of times corresponds in my experience with your early season sign. Um, it tends to relate to, uh, to cover that's fairly close to food and water, um, but is, is focused on a place where they're not getting disturbed. Um, now in your early season, that cover can be all over the place because they've had six, eight months with nobody in the woods. So you may find them, for example, up by a road somewhere where they normally aren't, and then they're going to revert back, you know, to a different spot. But the principle applies going into late season, right? So like, yes, you may have a spot that just doesn't get pressured enough and they completely go right back to that early season pattern, but it's more about that early season principle. So, right. They're going to bachelor back up. They're going to start, working in afternoons like they'll they'll be leaving food leaving cover and you know coming in and out of the woods and daylight a little bit more in my experience they're in a group of deer so they're a little bit more confident because they're you know more eyes needs more safety um they've identified what the safest place for them to be by that time of the year is usually because they've been pushed into kind of a hole or a little fishbowl so they're very diligent about their path of travel from a to b and if you can get in and get some trail camera data or get eyes on deer at that time of the year it's i think it's really important because you can for all intents and purposes they can only go so many places right because they've been pressured all year long especially in the southeast we have two and three month long rifle seasons our deer are getting shot at all the time so you know their their scope of safe landscape is getting progressively smaller so by using trail cameras on it on a full season basis you can watch like whether they revert back to an area and they start using a specific core area in late season, like they did early season, or they can revert to an area that's more security cover based um, where they're moving into a spot just because it's their safety net. Mm -hmm. Now I know I'm kind of going to jump ahead a little bit with this, but like I'm, I'm going to cut to the chase because I'm really, really, really curious about it. The big question mark in my head, especially for that time of year is uh, what are you, looking for to locate those deer because like they're not like in early season i would be looking for whip rubs like little scrapes you know just early season buck sign uh in late season like you were talking about they're they're not really aggressively hitting the scrapes like i guess they'll come and, and hit a licking branch possibly but but they're not like you know pawing the ground and just opening the scrape wide open uh are they are they laying down whip rubs normal rub like what what's that look like from a buck sign perspective I'd, I don't typically find, I mean, every now and then I think you'll find a rub that gets fired up or you may come across a scrape, you know, that, that may be a buck work, but I don't consider it consistent enough sign to hunt the same way I would sign in October and November where I'm really trying to backtrack that sign. The biggest telltale for me is I'm looking for footprints. So a lot of times in late season, um, you know, I, I, it, it works in Alabama too. I think it's going to be dependent upon the landscape that people hunt in. But for me, a lot of the times I'm hunting in uh, more open terrain, river, river bottom. It's usually getting a little bit more wet. We're seeing some rain, so things are damp. So I'm looking at creek crossings. I'm looking at heavy trails. I'm looking at um, I'm going and bumping into security cover, bumping some deer out, and then looking like, okay, am I cutting tracks in here? Because that's that's the reality of it, right? It's like you can't you can't guarantee that he's in a specific area at that stage of the season without finding something that says, Hey, he was actually here. Like, yeah, a scrape is good. And a rub is good. You know, you might find a rub 
um, that's like you may find a hammer sized rub that will indicate that there are mature deer that use the property, but you could spend all of your late season hunting a ghost, you know, by doing that, you know, so you really need to hone in on finding, in my opinion, a big track, uh, and heavily traveled areas that come in and out of like very odd, like obvious and, um, almost in, like to an extent impenetrable or, um, like security cover that for all intents and purposes gives him the advantage significantly more than yourself. Yeah. Like a lot more. Um, and that's what I'm looking for. So, so if we, if we take a, if we take a step backwards and we say, okay, I'm going to come to a priest property, like I'm going to go hunt a random piece here in North Carolina. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take a 10,000 foot view and I'm going to zoom out on that property. I'm going to look at leaf off imagery. If the state is provided that on Onyx or another platform, I'm going to try to identify where like my, my trees that are going to be evergreens or leaf holding trees are going to be where my edges are, uh, where, where something that might constitute heavier, higher stem counter, denser cover. Um, and something to think about for a lot of like any of our Northern guys that come down, you know, one of the ways I've tried to explain it is like you guys would explain this as, okay, well, our deer are associating to thermal cover this time of the year. Well, in the South, our deer aren't worried about thermal cover, in my opinion, they're worried about visual cover. Um, but the principle still applies, right? So like the same things that would equate to thermal cover can apply to that because it's usually evergreens, it's beech trees, it's these trees that hold their leaves longer, high stem count areas that those deer can get into. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to look at the map. I'm going to take that 10,000 foot view and I'm going to try to determine like where on, whether it's the public or the surrounding properties, and it's usually the surrounding properties that are providing the best food sources for the doe groups, um, because they're going to be bedded in conjunction to those food sources and traveling to and from point A to point B. Most public, in my opinion, now I'm not saying everywhere because you guys in Alabama do a great job. Your state has a lot of food plots planted, but here our state doesn't do a lot with food plots on the public. So most of our deer are transient through the public. They're eating and living on private, transitioning through the public or living on the public and transitioning private. So by looking at like the property from a 10,000 foot view and saying, okay, where are my access points for people? Where are the most likely places that those deer saw pressure? And then what is the gnarliest cover that they could be residing in at this point that relates to food, water, you know, and security? Then I'm going to go check that. And I'm and it's great if I see a rub or sign in there, you know, but it's even more important that I'm finding big tracks. I could care less if there's big sign there, if there's big tracks there. Uh, and then I'm going to start hanging cameras and I'm going to try to like, hone in on that spot based on what like the was what that those tracks are telling me he's doing coming from point a to point b gotcha okay that's a whole can of worms that i'm excited to get into me and jacob are fighting over questions i got one listen you can take it it's it's a very simple question well i got a i got a simple question when it comes to that dense cover that you're talking about uh are you looking for cover that is not, not only like really dense and is a visual obstruction but cover that also is like slam full of brows like like cover that is also food that's a good that's a good question so not necessarily and and i think that so that this is kind of like um this is kind of one of those things 
I think a lot of people, you read a lot of articles online. I can't remember, Jake, I think Jake and I were talking about this before uh, you got on the call, Andrew, but I, I can't remember if you heard or not. The, there's, there's a lot of misconceptions in what I think our deer prioritize in late season because everybody associates late season to like deer so run down that they have to, they're, they're hammering food to survive the winter. It's like, well, it's really not that cold. Like most of our season I can hunt in like a hoodie and a vest or a light jacket. Like they're, they're not out there just surviving. Like those deer in Wisconsin or Iowa or the Dakotas, you know, when it's negative 20, you know, and they're traveling two miles in a herd to eat, a, you know, corn stalks like that, that's a different animal, you know? So, uh, I'm not putting as much weight on, on food. Um, just because to me, the number one thing is, is security for our deer, especially with the length of our firearm season. Um, if a place does happen to have food, that's great. Um, but for the most part, it's, it's almost never a factor in my mind. It's more of like, I'm looking for where he can bed safely and then go, okay, if I can find him leaving here, you know, and then I know he's leaving, I just know he's going that direction. I don't really care where he's going. I just know that he's going that way. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not going to hunt him where he's going um, because usually if you think about your trail camera data uh, or like the buck that I was talking to Jacob about, they're leaving just that I'm hunting right now. I mean, is they're leaving just at dark and they're getting back right at daylight. So I, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not out there spotlighting them. I'm not going to shoot them in the dark. So it does me no good to try to hunt him there. I'm trying to hunt him right where that transition point is between, um, between where he's bedding and like maybe where he'll, he'll mill around in the morning before he officially lays down. So it's, it's extra important that you, that you look for that. And, you know, I guess that that's a long way of saying, no, I'm not really interested in food. Um, and I think part of that is because food is so readily available in the Southeast, whether we think it is or not, like they can eat a lot of the stuff that's out there. Now you might get a spot like a big national forest where it's a little further, you know, here or there, but I think our deer can eat a ton, especially where that butts up to like neighborhoods or housing developments or, you know, somebody's daisies and, you know, or whatever, like, um, you know, or, or if you've got big cattle pastures and ag fields, like you do a lot, around a lot of Southern Alabama's public, you know, like that stuff down there, those deer are just going to, they'll just man, like move their way to that. You know, they're, they're, they're just going to get there. They may only feed there for 45 minutes and then start working their way back, but you know, that's not where I'm going to kill them. So this is part of one of my questions. Um, I was going to ask you a little bit more about specifically late season food sources, things that would get your attention that like a buck would potentially travel to. But as you've mentioned, like the focusing on the food is not as important for you because a lot of times it's not even necessarily on the public or maybe there's something they're browsing on the public, but it's not necessarily like you got food pots or late dropping acorns or anything like that. Um, but there's a bunch of different aspects for guys in the Southeast to pay attention to that, you know, are late season food sources. There's so many different browse species. And we talked about this on the podcast, just like you've talked about Jacob, that, you know, a lot of the deer or a lot of what we deal with in the South is very different from the guys in the Midwest and the upper Midwest where, you know, when it gets to December 1st, there's not an ounce of green or anything other than woody browse and, and grain left for deer to feed on really. 
where down here there's still so much that deer can feed on it still has some greenery to it um or you know different uh, forbs and different browse species they can hit on outside of a food plot or corn pile or grain or anything like that um and even you know talking about specific uh, oak species that could drop a little bit later like specifically like water oaks that we have a lot down here in alabama um but you're, you're talking about like you're Cover is by far the number one thing that you're focused on for late season. It's cover first. Food is way down the totem pole for just like figuring out an area. But what is the trail cam strategy to locate specific deer? Because again, you're still a guy. I don't, I don't, from our past conversations, you're not just the guy that's just going to go randomly sit out on a spot to, you know, hopefully get on a mature buck. You're trying to find potentially a mature buck, whether it's through trail, trail camera data you know, finding tracks, you know, getting some kind of observation that tells you that, hey, there is still a good deer in the area. You know, if it's just a track, you don't know how big his antlers are, but you may throw a camera in there to try to get an observation from a trail camera uh, in order to kind of figure out, you know, what caliber he is. But like the deer you're hunting right now, you know, is an upper echelon deer, like what we had talked about previously before we started recording the podcast uh, for your area. And, you know, you're hunting him right now more during that secondary rut time period. It's still not really that bachelor group, you know, uh, time period yet. But in, in situations like this, when cover is so important, you're talking about one thing you mentioned that really kind of caught my attention is cover that gives that deer so much of an advantage is a disadvantage for the hunter. Like it makes it very hard for yeah. you to hunt in just some general thought process or general thought on that. What are different examples that you've experienced across maybe the Southeast that would be examples of, you know, a, a type of cover to give people an idea of what you're talking about? Because one thing that comes to me is like a, a five, six, seven year old pine thicket that like is impenetrable to walk into, you know, it might be 10 acres in size. It might be a hundred acres, but there's browse and everything inside there. And you can kind of mill around in there before he ever jumps out to go hit a destination food source. And you might not even get an opportunity, but that's the first thing that comes to mind based off, you know, a lot of our experiences, but what were some examples maybe you would have? So for me, my favorite stuff to hunt is anything that's wet. Um, because it's just, you know, it's, if you think about, I, I almost think about it, like I, I try to, and this is, this is, this, <laughs> this saying has probably been like, you know, beat, you know, beat to death, but you know, you, you got to think about it. Like if you were being hunted, right? So if you were being hunted for three months straight, if you think about like just either the land that you own or the house that you own, and you knew that every day you woke up, somebody was coming in there to look for you. Like as the season got on, you know, it's almost like when you're, you know, when you're a kid and you play hide and seek as a kid and you play it all the time, you know, there's always that spot, right? There's that spot that you know you can go to and you'll probably win or you'll be close to winning. You know, you're always there. It's like, you know, maybe it's like behind the, the you know, the the HVAC unit or something. I don't know, some weird place in your house. You know, so that that's the same principle that those bucks are doing, in my opinion, is they're getting pressured all season long and they're going to hone in on that spot. It's like the spot within the spot within the spot. <laughs> and then they're only going to leave in a way that gives them the highest level of security. So for me, the best way to find that is to look for things that give them one, the wind advantage. So usually I find them in those in, in places where it's very difficult to approach them from the right wind. Um, like it, they're usually bedded in spots that are like uncommon winds for our area. Um, like Jacob, that buck, that buck that I was telling you about, um, he's bedded in a spot where like our predominant wind direction is northwest, uh, northwest, west, north, um, this time of the year here. Um, he has all of that 
that's that he can smell coming into where he's bedded. And then if we are to get an east wind, um, he's got a creek bedded up on his east side, so you can't come in from his east side. And then the way he's looking when you come into his bed is like a thousand yards of wide open creek bottom. Like it's super wide open. So he can see, like he has everything there. Like there is almost no way that you can get to him, um, you know, barring a couple of the things I'm going to try. <laughs> um, so I'm looking for, so I'm, I'm looking for places that people are less likely to go, places that are uncomfortable, anywhere where I'm sinking my boots in mud, I'm having to put waders on, I'm having to use a canoe to cross a creek. I am, um, you know, in, in pine thicket country, um, I'm looking for like, one of the things that I really like is when you find like, let's say you have like a 500 acre cut and then there's an SMZ that runs up through that cut and the SMZ would dead end, like dead in the middle of that cut at the very tip of that SMZ. You may get bucks that'll skirt around it because they, they still want to leave like that security cover. It's just they're going to leave in the safest way possible where it gives them the most opportunity to to stay safe, to get away. And, and the hard part for for us as hunters at that point is finding out, okay, well, they're like a, they're like a seasoned vet at this point. Like all of the, all of the ease of hunting them is worked out. Right. So like it, you know, you're playing the game with the best of the best. It's the bucks that are left that survived because they were smart enough to survive. So, you know, that, that, you know, so, so I don't know if that answers your question, Andrew, but, um, or Jacob, but it's the, it's, I think it's security cover that is hard to access um, and, and, you know, gives them the advantage. I don't know any other way to say it other than kind of what it is. You know, if you're staying there in a piece of property, um, I think you guys have talked about it before. You ever just get like that bucky feeling You're like, oh man, this spot feels right. You know, like in the late season, if you just pretty much count out like everything that's wide open timber for the most part, and you just walk until you find that spot and in your mind, you're like, oh man, there's tracks here. This feels like where I would be if I was a buck at this time of the year. It's probably worth like slowing down and like looking at the ground and scouting and trying to determine, okay, is there something that's relatable to fresh tracks or fresh sign, or is there a reason for him to be here? And then trying to pick out, you know, one, two or three spots surrounding that area that are prime travel corridor camera locations that just identify whether he's there and he's alive. Um, because he's there for a reason. He's going to be a little bit harder to push out than he would be in October, in my opinion. So you have a little wiggle room and bumping him or moving him around as long as you're not changing that bed in the morning. So if you change when he's coming back to bed, he's forced to bed somewhere that he doesn't know about. So that throws everything off. So that's, in my opinion, that's like, that's the big factor of when you have to be extra careful. So, uh, one thing I'm curious about is how the bucks are exiting the cover. How exactly are you keying in on his exact trail? Cause coming from a pine country perspective, uh, when you go find, you know, your local pine thicket that looks really good, uh, it's got honeysuckle and everything up underneath it. It's really thick. Uh, the deer are mm -hmm. clearly in there Well, when you go walk in the edge and I know this cause I did this like seven days ago, you go walk <laughs> in the edge and it's like trail 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 i mean you just uh, like they're just kind of coming out of it all over the place so how is how is it that you're determining 
the trail. And and also, you know, keep in mind they're walking through like pine straw and stuff. So I'm not yeah. really able to pick up like a like a big track in there. So how would you approach that? Um, if I mean, if it were me, I think my gut would be I would be trying to think about what I think constitutes where where primarily doe traffic is going to be versus buck traffic. Um, and, and what I mean by that is is I would be thinking about what depth of cover would relate to for that deer in a pine ticket. So if I was going to walk that edge, like let's say let's say you've got an edge that you're walking um, and it's hard to, to, to do this without like a visual example, but your buck is, in my opinion, usually going to be in, in the spot that's going to give his, him the safest like opportunity there. Right. So like at, at times I think that like those does and younger bucks can almost be like a shield for that deer. He's going to, he's going to be looking for like, a place where he can be away from them, but where he can monitor how they are. So if I, if I'm faced with like 12, like if I'm faced with a, a, an edge line and there's 12, um, like 12 trails coming out of it, I think to an extent, there's a little bit of like trial and error that come with that, but also looking at it from the perspective of, is this spot more like, do I feel like this spot is more likely to be used primarily by does or by bucks? Uh, I don't think that that buck is as interested in being close to food. So, you know, let's just say for, in, for the sake of the example, that that thicket, you know, the, the further you get down the line, the further you get away from, um, from food. Like at the front of the thicket where all those trails are exiting, you're close to green fields or you're within a couple hundred yards of food plots where there's a big SMZ or oaks or whatever. Your does are probably going to be using that front section in my experience. It's not that he won't ever be in there, but he's going to continue on until he feels like there's a spot where he has the advantages where there's it's less likely that there's going to be predators there. I mean, obviously like your coyotes and those things are all trying to get after your young does and they're trying to get the easiest meal, right? So the closer he is to them, the higher likelihood he is, he's close to predators. So he's going to be further away from the food. He's going to make a longer trek to that food in the evening. He's going to make a longer trek to those doe groups. So I would be trying to find the trails that I don't feel like constitute proximity wise, um, like that, that maybe top of funnel window with like your, your, your depth of cover if that makes sense um so like the t the first two-thirds of those trails depending on the layout of that cutover i would be looking at it as like okay does this i would ask myself is this more likely a doe trail or a buck trail based on the position where it lies in that thicket itself is that does that answer that question i know it's kind of difficult to yeah i feel yeah. like that's it's hard for me to answer because it's a lot of like it's a lot of like in the moment decision making where you're kind of looking at the scenario and kind of being faced with that that structure of okay is does this look like a reasonable place for a deer to be this time of year and does it give him all the advantages and if not then continue to move along you know and then when you find something where you're like okay this seems right um like he has more things going for him than not from a trail perspective that's when you can start running your trail cameras in that given area or running your trail cameras. Let's say you can't figure it out. And that that's, 
it's not easy. Like that buck that I'm hunting that Jake was just referring to, um, I did not know where he was going into this thicket for the longest time. So I was running a camera on the travel path, like east west um, on the thicket. So I was just trying to catch him coming east to west and then hopefully catch him on camera turning to go into the thicket in certain parts you know, through moving cameras and then figuring out where that was. And then I could adjust the camera onto the specific trail and find him coming out or going in. So it's hard to, it's not as definitive as like your October, November times of the season where you're like, oh, I would, I'd be looking for this. You know, they're exiting this trail. They're going to hit a rub. They're going to hit a scrape. A lot of it is woodsmanship from the perspective of you just have to make some trial and error judgment calls based on your woodsmanship skills. House of Game Calls Dixie Hen Slate was just voted the overall best turkey call about field and stream outdoors, and trust me, it's super easy to run and be extremely dynamic when you're in the turkey woods. Now, we've mentioned a couple of these calls in the past, like the Spur Master and the Success Call in a past episode with both Gary Vines and Lyle Gilbert of Houndstooth Game Calls. And it was funny enough, y'all actually bought every Spur Master call and success call they had. Now, pay attention to their website. They're going to have some more come up in stock in the next few days. So when they come available, make sure you get one if you did not purchase one before they sold out last time. Both the Spurmaster and the Success Call are fantastic for hunting high-pressure turkeys, whether you're on a hunting club where you have a lot of other members hunting those same turkeys, or if you're on public land. Again, both of those calls will make you sound a little bit different from everybody else and be a lot more subtle in your calling technique and be able to really help close those distance with those gobblers. So if you want to give Houndstooth Game Calls a try, go to houndstoothgamecalls.com, use the the promo code SOP24. Again, promo code SOP24 for 15% off houndtoothgamecalls.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke, and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? 
Yeah, I've always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the true lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the true lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50-yard pattern on my gun with the true lock choke is unbelievable. Like Everybody's jaws were dropping. Like when I, We were out there with Mike and Sam. We were all super impressed. I mean, it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke. And Andrew, you're shooting the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. It's a great option. Same chokes I have in my shotgun. So guys, if you want to give True Lock a shot this spring, you can head over to truelockchokes.com. That's T-R-U-L-O-C-K-chokes.com. You can also use the promo code SOUTHERN at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give True Lock a shot this spring especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun and shoot with a more deadly pattern with true lock. And see, that goes right into Jacob, what I wanted to discuss on, which was, you know, based off that question, Andrew's asking, like in the situation, with all these trails, like when and how do trail cameras start being implemented in order to try to find a pattern with a specific deer? Um, and you just kind of, you know, hit on that. And, and what kind of comes to mind in like Andrew's situation, talking about all these trails coming out of pine ticket, it's like, what trail can he come out of that? He's not instantly in wide open cover. Or there like la- or lack of cover. It's like, okay, a trail that's comes great. out of a pine thicket that runs through a privet thicket that snakes down yep. through a bottom that then he yep. can, you know, run for a long ways before he goes back up another drainage potentially to, you know, that food source that he wants to hit, you know, you know, an hour after dark or 45 minutes after dark or whatever. Um, yep. That's what kind of comes to my mind just based off what you're saying. But like implementing those trail cameras because we're also – we're still kind of staying around that aspect uh, that Andrew wanted to hit on earlier, which is kind of that more battered up group time period. And, and cause I do want to, it's a little bit later in this episode, I do want to talk a little bit more about the secondary rut hunting. And I think there's a, there's a good chance that a lot of these guys that are listening in Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, some of these states that hunt a little bit later, that have a little bit later rut that they can, you know, potentially have some success, you know, hunting a, a secondary rut aspect. But while we're talking about the bachelor group, do you see that some of these more mature bucks, when I'm talking about like a five, six year old buck, like a deer, maybe you have a little bit more history with, or you can tell on camera, he is a much older buck than your three and a half and your four and a half year old bucks running around. Are they still, I know every buck has like their own kind of personality and what they do, but do you still see those kind of bucks bacheloring back up? Or do you ever see some of those bucks still being kind of loners, even into the real late season where they're still trying to do their own thing and they're not getting back together with, you know, two or three other bucks. That's a that's a super good question. Um, I think that I think that you probably your oldest age class bucks are probably still going to be loners um, like that. For example, that buck that I was telling you about that I chased in Alabama two years ago. It was two or three weeks after the rut when I got on him, and um, that deer was by himself all the time. Like I think there was one day when I I, I kicked him, or he was. I say I kicked him. He was in the vicinity of another doe one day, but for the most part, he was living by himself. Like he's trying to be by himself. I do think that, you know, for most hunters, myself included, when I'm looking at late season, it, it's I'm I'm obviously always trying to hunt a specific buck, like if I can, you know, if I have the ability to do so. But I'm I'm not gonna let a good three and a half year old buck walk by my tree stand and and not get shot quite frankly. So, so I'm willing to take whatever, you know, I'm given from that opportunity perspective. Um, so, you know, if I'm sitting there running cameras and I'm chasing a buck and all of a sudden I pull a card somewhere else and there's a three and a half year old or a four year old deer that's bachelored back up, 
which is exactly what happened last year. So the buck that I'm chasing right now, uh, I chased for two weeks last year and just couldn't pin him down exactly. Um, and then I went and pulled a random card uh, on an adjacent piece of property and had like an awesome 10 point that bachelored back up with like a little eight and a spiker. And he was just doing the same thing every day from like right after Christmas. It was like the 27th or something right then, from then through January 1st. That was when he was doing his thing and they were going to feed in this one big open area and they were coming back and going in bed and was one, one big open area and they were taking one or two trails depending on where the wind was going to lie um, for them to do that. So I started hunting him and I got a crack at him late season um, and, uh, you know, it didn't work out in my favor. I'd, I got busted by the spike trying to draw, but that's that's the that's the name of the game. Right. So but the point of that story is just to say it's like, hey, it's not. I don't think that you should be so, I mean, it's great when you can hammer down on one, but like, don't be so set off to where you can't go hunt a different buck that is, that that's like, that is bacheloring back up. Um, you know, you can continue to hammer on that big one and you may get lucky. Um, but you know, don't look a gift horse in the mouth as they say. Um, yeah. So, but, um, anyways, the, I, I think that as they bachelor back up, like those three and a half to four year old deer are going to be easier to get on because you you're getting them in daylight and doing stuff. Those big deer, you just really have to like hammer home like those old deer because they just, they don't get that way, you know, for lack of being redundant, they don't get that way by being stupid. Um, and you need to be like almost on top of them. Like you need to be as, as close to them as you can physically get with as many advantages as you can give him, like giving him an off wind, um hunting the the exit travel running cameras around him like your focus should be for the most part dedicated to him and then if you can pivot you will so let me ask you a little bit more on the trail cam strategy so when i think of late season i think of highly pressured deer they've been hunted for months on end okay yep. and you're running trail cameras around them is this a time when if you have cell signal you'll use cell cameras or if you have to use an sd like a normal trail camera non-cellular camera what is your thought process if you're having to go check a camera where you think there's a buck at very close? Cause you're trying to put these cameras very close to catching them entering yep. and exiting a spot. What is the strategy about trying to get in and out clean if you're not using cell cameras? That's a great question. So I think, I think it depends on how, how I can check those cameras with regards to like my path of travel in and out of where I'm hunting. So I, you, there's two different ways you can approach this. So, um, First off, there are certain properties I have. Uh, you guys just talked about this on uh, a recent episode where it's almost it's more it's more beneficial to run a cell camera because the when you're going to hunt that property, it's so invasive that there's no way to hunt it consistently by with while using your trail cameras and getting data. So for me, there are some properties where there's just no way for me to get in there and have a chance at hunting him if if I'm running a manual check camera, um, with the exception of if I, if money was no option and I could just buy a hundred standard or manual cameras and cover the entire surrounding area and then just get him consistently at night and then be able to kind of like figure out where I think he's coming from based on that nighttime path of travel. Yes. But I, I'm not made of money and I don't have that many cameras. I'm, you know, usually running like eight or 12 cameras and scattering one or two per property. And then when I find one like this, I'm going to pull them in and try to 
routinely check them in an area that's safe for me to walk that I know I'm going to walk on my path in and out of the woods to hunt just to monitor whether he's been there or not. Um, if I have access to cell cameras, like I, I do have a couple right now, I'll go ahead and put those in the places that are the most invasive for me to have to get to, which oftentimes are places that I don't even expect to kill him. It's just where it, it reassures me at this time of the year that he's still there. So I'm just looking for the assurance if he's there and he stays there, I'll, I know I feel confident in my ability to get the job done and to, to manage the situation appropriately. It's just knowing that he's there because it's easy to hunt a ghost this time of the year. So like I kind of segment my cameras into like manual check cameras that I'm going to touch base on, you know, every day, every week in late season as much as I can. And then my cell cameras are going in places where I don't want to have to go back to. I don't even expect to be in there hunting him in there. It's just for me to know that he's there. So now you just mentioned something. You manually check truck cameras, like your non cellular cameras. You're going to try yep. to check those as often as possible. Is that what you're kind of saying? Like, if, Yeah, whenever I'm on that property, if I can check them, I'm checking them. Okay. Like, you know, like that's it, it. This time of the year specifically, because of the fact that you don't have sign to rely on, right? So like you have to, it, it's, it's, it's less about, um, and I, I can't like uh, reiterate this enough. It's less about hunting him on the, the travel from that camera and just knowing that he's there. Like it's your job to figure out that he's there, like where he is and what he's doing on that property. The, the camera just tells you, hey, he's here and he's alive, which gives you the chance to hunt him. Because kind of re referring back to the previous podcast we did, you're, it's even more so a game of odds this time of the year because they're not moving very far. And if they do move or if you do push them out, there may not be another buck there at all because a lot of your bucks have been shot. A lot of your bucks are out roaming around or maybe they're held up in a different area. Maybe the security cover can only hold a specific buck because of you know his authority or whatever. So you have to be extremely confident in the fact that he's there to to hunt him which is why i put so much stake in one uh tracks you can find tracks like finding mature buck tracks um you know finding sign uh, in areas that's hard to access and then two like con getting consistent trail camera data that allows you to understand both the annual pattern like is the likelihood that he's going to be here high based on annual intel but then also continuing that pattern in the moment while you're actively hunting it to determine, is he still here? Am I picking him up? Am I still seeing sign? And maybe you don't get him on your camera, but you're still consistently seeing buck tracks and you're shifting your cameras until you do get him, you know? So Jay, let me ask you a, a trail cam question that probably a lot of people don't think about, but it's only I've noticed a lot this year. So uh, it, it goes back to a question I want to ask you whether or not you run your trail cameras on photo mode or video mode. And I'll kind of give some, some backstory to this. Um, a lot of the cameras we're running right now, um, especially cell cameras, they're on both. So they take a photo and then they take a 10 second long video. One thing we've noticed is specifically, unless you have like a blackout camera, you're going to have a red light. When that camera goes off or a photo, it's just a quick red light that flashes. Okay. Real subtle may or may not grab a deer's attention, but when it's on video mode, it stays red for 10 seconds. And we've had quite a few bucks, especially on some of these big community scrapes we run the cameras on, look up, notice the camera, and we might not see that deer again for another seven days or more. Yeah. Um, 
late season, and this is where I'm getting at with this, they've been so precious. They probably have already seen a bunch of trail cameras, especially on video mode, that little red light. And like, especially one thing we've noticed is a lot of those mature bucks, you may get one video of that deer and then he's gone and you, he, he might be coming by that camera, but he's not walking back in front of that camera. With that being said, do you run your cameras on video mode? Or do you run them exclusively on photo mode? What is your thought process there when you're hunting a pressured whitetail late into the season? I will, I will give, <laughs> I'll give credit where credit is due. I was, I never used to use video mode on my cameras because I've run cheap cameras. I, I like, um, I like the wild game innovations cameras over the Tasco ones personally. Um, so I run as many of those as I can. Um, I thought I had some here by me, but I can't, I don't have any here to show you, but, um, I run those cameras, uh, primarily and my buddy, Chris, who I hunt with all the time, uh, he has pushed me to do more video and it's helped. Now, granted on those like manual check cameras, um, I'm, I'm getting a lot more Intel by running them on video over the course of the season, because I can see path of travel and movement. Um, with my cell cameras, if I'm going to, when I deploy those, I'm really looking for just noticing that he's alive. So I really could care less whether or not it's on video or not. I just need something that justifies him being alive. The other thing that I, I really harp on doing is I hang my cameras high in the tree, like at least a stick high, like regardless of whether it's on private or public, unless there's something where the can it canopies out and I can't physically get that camera angle. I'm not only does it help protect my cameras from getting, you know, the SD card snatched, but I, I also think it keeps like it out of the deer's line of sight for a lot of, for a lot of, for all intents and purposes. So I don't typically find, I, I get very few video or, or photos, uh, like video clips or photos of bucks looking right at my camera. It's not that it doesn't occasionally happen, but it's pretty rare. I would say like less than 10% of the time do I catch any of them doing that. So I always tell people like, hang them up in the tree, like take a stick with you and hang them jokers higher than you can reach. Like, you know, I'm six, two and a half. Like if I, if I can, if I can reach the bottom of that camera, it's too low. Like it needs to be further than I can jump and hop to reach. So you're thinking nine feet, eight, eight and a half, nine, ten 10 feet, and then angling it down at a specific trail. Um, I also really like putting it on, on left to right travel and trying to avoid putting my cameras on travel where that buck is going to be going to and from. I think a lot of people make that mistake because they want to get that big, like illustrious picture of that buck, like walking away or coming to the camera and you have this big old frame walking at you. Like that's cool, but you're, you're opening yourself up to getting noticed when you do that versus like setting yourself, setting your camera, like, not necessarily worrying about your picture or video quality and just worrying about identifying if that deer is one that you want to shoot or not. Like that's what your camera is for. That's what you should be using it for. Um, if you're there to take nature photos or nature pictures, then we are on two different wavelengths. Cause like <laughs> I could, I've gotten grainy pictures of a buck at 30 yards and I can just tell he's got a good frame and that's all I need. And if he does that, you know, more than one time in a row. And I can determine that that's his core area or that's an area he frequents enough for me to like backtrack where I think he's coming from. Then, then yeah, it, it works for me. That's all I need to know. I'll say this as well. I think one advantage that you have compared to like what we're doing is you said, you already mentioned, you don't put a lot of trail cameras on scrapes. And I think the issue about putting trail cameras on scrapes, because all of our cameras are nine, 10 feet up, you know, we're yeah. one or two sticks high hanging cameras. 
is they're spending so much time at that scrape, and you might have that camera 10, 15 yards, but at some point they're going to have their head They're going to notice it. And they're like, what the yep. hell is that red light doing? When it's on specifically <laughs> video mode. But like on trails, when they're just walking, they've got their head down walking. And again, you're catching yep. more perpendicular travel, not parallel travel to the camera. There's a lot like a lot lower likelihood they're going to actually look and see that camera when you have it up versus mm-hmm. on a scrape when they're spinning time there and their head's already up hitting that licking branch. Yeah, they're throwing the head up, hitting the licking branch, and it's like, oh, there's a camera. So I, I think that's it's, – it's mostly at night for us. It's not during the daytime. It's at night when yeah. that happens. So I think that's a huge advantage of what you're talking about, not running cameras on those scrapes but running them just on those, you know, those, tra- those trails, those travel corridors, uh, that it's a less – odds of happening for you and to me that makes a lot more sense after you've kind of explained that yeah i think uh, and i think too like i think there's a time and a place to run a camera on a scrape i don't think that there's anything wrong with that um you know for for me it, it almost the, i'm not gonna say that i don't ever put one on a scrape because i have and i and i do occasionally um but but i try to like tie those scrapes to a path of travel like bucks are cruising this area and they're going to lay down a scrape and by default my camera's in the vicinity of a scrape but it's not pointed directly at one or whatever you know i I think that putting your cameras on scrapes is more indicative of like a tactic to then hunt that deer on or around that scrape versus i'm just trying to identify that he's there and he's alive so like i could care less if he's on my camera at four in the morning, I have him on camera. So it's like, okay, well, like now I can like draw a big circle around the property and say, Hey, it's late season. Where is the likelihood of this buck coming from? That's going to put him at four in the morning, you know? So that's, that's what I'm interested in rather than like this, the, like the scrape specifically. Uh, So I want you to walk me through some scenarios or a scenario that you just kind of mentioned, like you get this buck on camera, it's late season. Okay. You know, we're past the secondary rut time period. At what point, how are you breaking out the map and breaking out the trail cameras to like fine tune the setup to try to backtrack that deer? So you're actually catching them very close to around daylight where you have an opportunity where, you know, like, Hey, if I go in this area during a certain time period, I'll probably get a shot opportunity. Like what, what exactly do you run through your head and looking at the maps and looking at on X, do you like fine tune once you get an image or two of a deer? So I think that, I think that the biggest thing that I would, that, um, man, there's a couple, I'm trying to think about how I want to start this. So the first thing that I'll, that I'll, I say that cause I don't want to be redundant. <laughs> uh, cause a lot of these things is like, I think it can come off as me just preaching the same thing over and over again, but it's, you know, I think, I think a lot of these answers are fairly simple. It's just trying to make sure that I articulate them well. So anyways, the, the biggest thing is, is understanding that that core area is in my opinion, the smallest it's been all season right now. So, so thinking about that buck, when you, when you're looking at a piece of public land or piece of private land, whatever, the principle is the same, depending on how much pressure is on the property. Um, you're thinking first and foremost, like, does this landscape have what a big buck would need to be safe? Now, that's the same thing that you should be asking yourself in October, November, but even more so now uh, because of the fact that he, he, once again, like we talked about on the, on the previous podcast, he can't be there if he's not alive. So, so for me, I'm looking at like cover, like that is super, I mean, I can't express how frustratingly difficult it is to get into to then put my trail cameras on because instead of let's take like a, 
like a late like an October or November strategy, right? And and you have a property with a cutover or a property that's got a ton of cover. That buck may be using that whole property intermittently over the course of that like let's say a two-day window or a three-day window or however. This time of the year, I, I feel like their home range where they can be safely is so small that that area he's in may only be 20 acres or 10 acres or two acres like that that's where he's calling home so it makes it easier in my opinion to run trail cameras on that given core spot now the landscape that i typically try to hunt in those areas are easier to identify this time of the year because of leaf drop so if i'm hunting let's say big con conventional pine stand forests of intermittent five to 30 year old pines. My approach is probably gonna be different there because of the fact that there's just more cover. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna have to walk more to identify what like five or 10 or 20 acre parcel of that landscape is he is likely in based on difficulty to access, based on sign that's left there, um, if there is new sign, that's great. If there's not, you know, you just can't count on that. But for me, most of the time I'm hunting big hardwood timber with very definitive like thickets and edges. And then I'm trying to boil down through those edges where I need to put my cameras um, or where I need to be hanging for observation sits to hopefully get a crack at that deer. So it, it's, I don't want it's it's easier and harder all at the same time it's easier to identify in my opinion where i think that they will be but it's harder to hunt them there because that area is so difficult to access and to hunt so that brings up another question i've got while we're talking about this you know really late season hunting talking about morning versus evening sits okay how does that come into factor i probably already know where you're going to go with this but explain the differences between like if like, is there any situation where you would say a morning sit would be an advantage over an evening sit, or is it mostly always evening sits when you're trying to target a buck like this late season? I think it's all about your access, personally. So, so for me, I, I I'm the same. I like, I, I'm gonna answer this question the same way I would early season because I know a bunch of guys that would like. They're like, I would never hunt the morning in the early season. It's like, well, I have the best luck hunting the morning in the early season. That's when I love to hunt mornings. <laughs> is in early season in the South specifically, I don't know about Wisconsin or Iowa or Illinois, but you know, in the South, I love the mornings, you know, so it, it's really like access based, uh, and, and Intel based. Right. So like, if I think that I can beat that deer back to bed, um, in the morning and get in there with him, I'm for sure going to try to get in there in the morning. Like, you know, but it's, it's, it's on a scenario type situation. Like if I can't, if I look at the scenario and I'm like, I'm not going to be able to get in there without him knowing that I'm there in the morning, like, or if he's going to beat me back, I'm not going to push in <coughs> that way. You know, I'm looking for like a path of access that gives me the opportunity. Now, I don't really care about how you leave the stand in my opinion. And that's pretty controversial. I feel like a lot of guys are super sensitive about when they leave the stand. But my philosophy is when I go in for a hunt, especially if I'm going in, where I think I'm going to kill him or I'm going in for, for a sit. I'm always going in. Um, oh man, I'm going to try to, you guys know me, I'm a rambler. So I'm trying to like take a step back to make this understandable. So I think the best way to describe this is like understanding how I go in for a specific sit. 
So a lot of people talk about observation sits. Um, I don't, I may go in for an observation sit, but I'm going in with the intent of, of putting myself in a position that will harvest that deer. Maybe it's not right on top of him, but it's in a spot where I think the odds are good and I can observe or scout something on the way in. Usually those are my afternoon sits. And, and I don't mind being a little bit more invasive in the afternoons because that buck is set up in a bed that allows him to win against me at that time of the day. So I don't mind bumping him out of his bed in the evening because he's prepared for that. So like he's, I'm not saying he's okay with getting bumped, but it's a whole lot different than you bumping him coming back to bed in the morning. Because if you think about it, that whole season, he's kind of whittled down this one spot. That's like his safe spot that like, if something comes in or bumps him out of there, whether it's a person or a coyote, he can get away safely. If you interrupt that process of him getting back in the morning, like you stand a pretty good chance at moving him to an area either you can't hunt or you don't have any information on and having to completely restart, um, you know, or having to wait a couple days <clears throat> until he comes back. In the evening, I don't mind bumping him. Um, now, I don't, you know, I don't mind hunting in the morning. I just have to know that the that what I'm going to do is going to work. Like, because there's there's more risk involved so i don't ever want to tell anybody not to go in and hunt a buck in the morning in the late season but i do want to emphasize that there's a lot more risk and that it, in my opinion um just because if you interrupt that path of travel back to bed and you you separate him from the, his safe spot i you have no idea where he's going you know maybe you're you know maybe you do I certainly don't, um, you know, because I'm putting all my chips into that one spot. So I'm being, I'm hunting both mornings and evenings, but I'm being very selective about my mornings. Um, and I'm hunting invasively in the evenings and extremely targeted in the mornings. If that makes sense. Now, is there a situation you can run, run bias on uh, like a, maybe it wasn't necessarily a successful hunt, but it was a, it was a morning sit when like the access was right. Maybe the trail camera data was right where you thought you could beat them back to, you know, the general area that he's kind of betting in and spending his time in. walk us through like what all took place in order for you to make that decision compared to like, again, this the invasive pushing on a, like an afternoon sit. All right. Um, so we will talk about, I'm trying to think about what a good example would be. So I think the best example would be that buck, uh, from Alabama that we've talked about. So, um, that deer was bedding. Um, uh, that deer was, he was basically, he was traveling the steep slope of a river bank to and from bed to a small green field. Um, so what he was doing was, and what I've, the way I found them was there was, there was one open scrape. It was the only fresh scrape that actually smelled like buck piss, like <laughs> that we had found on this whole giant property. Like that one scrape, I actually kicked him off of bedded. He was bedded 20 yards from it. And this is in late season in Alabama. I kicked him off that like bedded. Oh, I kicked him out of a bed near that scrape and watched his exit route as he ran off based on the the habitat type for that property specifically there wasn't really anywhere else that i knew that that buck in my opinion would go like he had only two maybe three spots 
that he could live on and stay in the vicinity of that property safely. There was just no other way that he could stay there. So I kind of just had to say, okay, well, why was he bedded here when, you know, the whole week we had been finding sign of him in another area that I thought he was betting in. Right. So I started to think about, well, if he's here, is there a reason he's here? And I, I felt like that the reason was we had pushed him to his secondary bed. So he's got a safe zone bed, you know, his primary bed, and he's got a secondary bed. We had been blowing up that area where his primary bed was, not knowing that he was there, just like finding some sign here and there and being like, oh, there's got to be a buck here. So he had reverted back to this other bed. So the benefit to that is like what that property did was it laid out on a north-south. So he was coming from the south and he was going towards the north in the morning with a north wind in his face. Um, my access was from the east. So I was able to actually crawl through a privet thicket, like hands and knees, crawl through this privet, <laughs> crawl through this privet to get to that path of travel from north to south. Now, granted, he was like at the time while I'm crawling, he's 100, 120 yards away from me on the fringe of this green field that was private where I, I assumed he was feeding and he was. Um and I knew based on the security cover that was available, there was only there was only one way that he could go back to bed. And he wasn't going to go back to bed in the spot that I had just bumped him out of the afternoon prior because he just got bumped out of that. So the likelihood is he's going to revert back to the original bed that he hadn't been using. And then my east to west access that kind of came in where I didn't have to cross either him on the south or him on the north, I could intercept him without touching his trail, gave me the advantage to get in there in the morning. Now, I saw that buck. I had him at 23 yards, but I didn't have pin light. So I wasn't able to make a shot. Um, but it's an example of the fact that, you know, had there been five more minutes of daylight, that setup would have worked perfectly. Like I would have had no issues at all with harvesting that deer. Um, and my, unfortunately, my trip just ended. So but the, the reality is, is like thinking through, thinking through that buck's path of travel by putting all of those pieces of the puzzle together and not just going, oh, he was here. I'm going to go sit here. It's like, no, no, he's there. That's a, that is one small piece of the puzzle to how you need to hunt him. Um, you know, I, I, you know, like I said earlier, if I go in for a spot, I'm going in for a morning sit or an evening sit and I go in and I have no encounter with him. He's not there. He's not where I think he should be. I'm just going to get down out of the tree. Kind of like you talk about Andrew at, at right at dark at shooting light and get the heck out of there as fast as I can, because one, I don't want to bump him after dark. Um, and then two, I'm just trying to get out of the woods as fast as I can, because I don't, I don't want to cause any more disturbance um, in that general area. And if he's not there, if I don't get a glimpse of him, then I'm assuming he's not there and it's clear for me to get the heck out of there, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So, uh, Jacob, if, uh, if you like getting out of the woods quick, never hunt with Jacob Myers ever. <laughs> oh, I've heard. <laughs> Dude, yeah. it's, it is, it's gnarly. It's bad. <laughs> that uh, episode that you guys talked about, that was hilarious. <laughs> so, uh, I just threw myself off that gummit. No. Uh, how, how much of that also <laughs> is intuitive though? Um, or, or how how much of that kind of hinges on experience? Because one thing that I think about is like really at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is 
is you're trying to figure out where he's coming from, you're trying to figure out where he's going, and then you're trying to figure out the most likely path that he's going to take. Like, if you boil it down, that's all it is. Like, okay, he's in this bedding area. I think he'll probably come down this drainage, and then he'd probably go up through that saddle, and then he'd probably do this. And, like, I was I was thinking about that as you were talking, and I'm like, you know, a lot of that, for me at least, like, if I find, if I find a scrape with a bunch of tracks, you know, I can, I feel like I can stand there and I can, I can look at my map and I can scout around and I can like very confidently figure out where the deer are coming from. Uh, as far as like a bedding thicket goes, the food's a little bit harder, but the bedding, I'm, I'm really confident I can do that. But I think that's just like, like, you know, doing it for so long and like bumping deers, deer over like over years now, like six, 10 years of like really getting after it and paying attention to it. Like you kind of get that sixth sense and yep. and you can you almost have that gut feeling and you have to kind of develop that gut feeling. So how much of it is that for you versus like you're just you you've got like a formula in your head that you're like just trying to apply? I, I think that there are times where it's a formula um, where it's like m- most of the formula is once you have drilled down enough to know he's in a spot. Right. So like if he's if you can pretty much go. Like, let's say you can section off, um, you know, like where this buck is that I'm hunting right now. I think he's probably living for the most part in give or take 10 acres. Now, the hard part is it's not a perfect square. It's kind of like oblong and has like a weird shape to it. So he could be anywhere in that gap at any time, depending on where he needs to bed at. So like there is a lot of gut instinct that goes into it, I think, or over the time, you know, your experience in the woods um, is going to compound to help you make judgment calls. Um, but uh, like, once you know where he's at, you can get formulaic. You can start like, you know, it's almost like you're, you create a bunch of boxes and you're like, he's not here. Check. He's not here. Check. And you can go down that list until you start to get close to, or have encounters with him the same way you can any other time of the season. I think there's some of it that's intuitive, um, that will come over time. But I, I almost feel like the people who struggle, in my experience, I feel like the people who seem to struggle the most with whether it be late season, um, you know, or even during, even during the rut or early season, just deer season in general are people that have these preconditioned ideas of what they should and shouldn't do. Like, Oh, I'm going to hunt this. I'm going to hunt food. I'm going to sit this box blind. I'm going to do this. And it's like, I can't harp enough that like that shouldn't be your approach and by not having a predetermined like decision that you're going to make you know like when i'm going in for an afternoon hunt and i'm scouting my way in for a late season sit i'm slowly pushing closer and closer to where he's at if i find a really good track and i think that it's telling me he went somewhere different i'm not opposed to throwing a sit up right there like i'm not going to let it you know i'm not going to it you know it's you have to be open to doing that, which inherently allows you to be intuitive. It allows you to like have that flexibility in your sit, you know, it allows you to be, to, to make, to make on the fly moves and changes. And I think a lot of people struggle because either, whether it's they've been conditioned to it by all this media or marketing material, where it's like, you got to go hunt a greenfield in late season. They got to eat. It's like, well, we live in the South. Like <laughs> they're coming out of a cutover. They can eat in a cutover. Like they don't, they don't got to eat, you know, um, you know, they, they just got to move, you know, I, I don't believe that deer are nocturnal. 
But I do believe that their home ranges get really, really tight, you know, because they have to survive. Yeah. So I, I I don't know if I think that that answers it. It's just it is intuitive, but it's also not like you can be a new hunter. And I think it can be almost more advantageous at times because you don't have any bad habits. Like just read the landscape for what it is and then try to take the basic core principles of like assuming that a buck will like depth of cover is important for him. So depth of cover is important proximity to security from the standpoint of where can people shoot him or not? <laughs> like, you know, what's the likelihood of his relationship to food, bed, water, like put those, which are almost like you could write down on a notepad and be like, okay, the property is this big, you know, let's 80, 20 rule that let's, you know, our dough, we've, I'm constantly finding does bedded here. Well, he's not going to be by the does. He's probably going to be where he can safely monitor those does, you know, so you can checklist all of those things. And then when you get in the woods, you allow your intuition to do what it should do, which is like your woodsmanship skills. You're, that's you making those on the fly judgments and decisions and giving yourself the freedom and flexibility to do that and not being so rigid that you can't either make a mistake or do something to learn from. Yeah. I, I, I want to bring this this up because we get a lot of questions uh, have to do with this. We had a Q&A question actually roll in, I think, today about this. And essentially, like the, the guy who asked the question, which we'll answer on a future outro, has basically been hunting really hard all year. And he's a new hunter. And he ha he's found rubs. He's found scrapes. He's found tracks. Ain't seen a deer yet. It is December 18th. Ain't seen a deer yet. Um, with, with somebody like that, who's, who's new and who's, who's really struggling to find some deer, would you say that it would be worth, I mean, just kind of like sacrificing the rest of your deer season? It's like, bro, maybe like carry the gun, carry the bow, but like, just walk, like maybe, oh, maybe yeah. don't set up. <laughs> like what, what would your advice be to somebody like that? Who is a newer hunter and they have yet to develop that gut feeling and they just don't, they don't have the experience yet to I mean, they just don't have the experience yet. Uh, what what would be your advice to them? I would say, I mean, I I would say that anybody that's in that scenario, um, I don't I don't want to be mean by saying this, but it, it's not intended to come off this way. It's just the there, in my opinion, what the reality is, and it's that you haven't walked your property enough. Is that you know either that or you're just not on a good property which is a totally realistic possibility. Like there could be deer only using it at night. You know, like I, uh, I'll jump back into the fact I hunt a lot of transitional pieces where deer are not actually on the property. They're moving through the property. So if that property only lays out where those deer are there at two in the morning, you're, you could hunt all season long and be in good scrapes and good tracks and never see anything, you know? So I think what matters more is that you, you, you get out, you put boots on the ground and you really walk until you kick up enough deer to be able to identify what they're doing, like, and what they're relating to that way you can start to plan for that. Um, you know, so, you know, going back to the thing in the, in the beginning is like, <laughs> like we have a lot of deer in the Southeast. There's a ton of deer here in general, right? Our population density in a lot of places is really high. Now Appalachia excluded um, you know, or some of the more mountainous regions excluded, there's a lot of places that it got the guys hunt, that there's a lot of deer there for all intents and purposes, but their job is still to survive. So they're not just going to let you find them, <laughs> you know, like they're going to lay down a lot of sign 
in that 80% of the property that they're never going to be there in daylight. Like they're only going to use that 20 or 10% of the property in daylight. So it's really easy to go walk into a place and be like, oh man, look, there's a, there's some doe tracks here. There's a buck track here. There's a scrape here and set up on it. But you know, you need to ask yourself questions of why are they here and continue to walk and hike. You know, if you haven't seen a deer all season, um, I don't know what part of Alabama that you're in or what part of the Southeast, but if you're, if you're seeing tracks, but you're not seeing deer and you've hunted really hard all season, you haven't seen anything then you need to just like start walking like walk until you're like literally the bottoms of your boots fall off um you know like <laughs> that's that's i literally go through a pair of like a boots a year pretty much you know and that i've been hunting the same area for going on seven years you know so mm, yeah th- it's the only way that you can learn it like there there is no easy recipe like it's you know i and i think a lot of people not to cut you off there but it's like I think a lot of people listen to these podcasts, right? And and they think like, oh man, like this guy or any of these other guys or or you all, like that um, they just know enough to where they can just be on deer. And it's like, well, we can put ourselves in a position to be on deer, but it's not without the first half of that equation, which is like, like sweat and effort, <laughs> right? So like there is no formula that is that doesn't that avoids hard work especially on public land like it's you know you may be able to walk in and shoot a doe but you're not gonna find a mature buck without actually hustling absolutely yeah we interviewed a guy last night who's who's been a a long time coming on the podcast uh people be pretty excited to hear that one it's a it's a good episode and we were talking to him about kind of that same subject and he he brought up now he's been hunting this place for a long like long time about 30 years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kept mentioning how, how much he walks. He's like, man, I hardly even hunt anymore. I'm just walking all the time. And he's already killed like a hammer this year. He's killed two this year. I think he, he's killed one or two like really good bucks this year already. He's like, man, I hardly ever hunt anymore. I'm, I'm just walking. I'm like, so let me get this straight. You've been hunting this area. It's not a very big area. You've been hunting this area since like the 90s. And you still spend most of your time walking. Like obviously he's familiar with the terrain and the area, but that that goes to show how much time he spends walking, even though he's already familiar with it. And I'm like, why are you doing that? And he's pretty much saying what you're saying. Like you got to stay on top of them. You got to see what's changed. Uh, and you're going in there and, and just kind of spot checking and, and adjusting with the deer. So it's not like he's like, oh, I found this one tree and I'm just going to hunt it every single year and, and kill a buck out of it. Like, you, you got to adapt and you got to keep moving. Like, even even the guys who are, are killing upper echelon bucks, like, especially those guys, that's what they're having to do to kind of stay on top of the game. And and the best, and I, I, I can't, like, reiterate this enough, the best hunters that I know, like, like whether everybody from, like, your, like, the guys who have done it for forever, you know, to, like, the guys who are on the come up, the the guys who are doing it the best year after year after year, consistent killers, they all do the same thing. They all walk a lot. Like, you know, like whether it's, whether it's somebody who's been doing it like Andre de from the eighties, you know, or whether it's like a new guy, you know, that's, um, you know, like a, a good example would be like Jake Bush, you know, in, in the Midwest and uh, Ohio, you know, lot the, like, the spectrum of new to old is the same. Like the, the recipe is, is literally just boots on the ground for a lot of this, you know? And, and it's, it's tough too, because you want to, 
like I want to be able to tell to tell people like, yeah, go do this. But it's like, you know, when you ask a question about being like um like that question on a cert on the specific trail, like on the cutover, it's like, yeah, well, like if you're walking edge of a cutover and there's 12 trails coming out of it, it's like, well, how do I tell you to like, what's your best judgment in that moment? It's like, yeah, I can kind of give you some some little bits of feedback there. Like, yeah, well, what does depth of cover look like? Oh, well, you know, this trail is the furthest away. It's like, okay, well, maybe think about like put a camera on that one, you know, but some of it is just trial and error. And even some of the best hunters that I know, they're if they don't see anything by 930 or 10, they're getting out of the stand, they're scouting until noon. If they don't like, it, you know, if, if they're not feeling confident in an area, if they don't have a buck to go hunt, then they're not, they may carry their bow or their rifle, but they're just walking. Like they're going to walk until they find a spot to be, and then they'll drill down, you know? So I think that that's, that's extra important at this time of the year. Yeah. And I think that's a, uh, that's a, that's a, such a good point to bring up right now. Cause I think the early or not the early, the late season is kind of like the, the culmination of, of the rest of your year. And like, really when you boil it down, it's just woodsmanship. Like you have to really be on your P's and Q's with your woodsmanship. You got to be able to read tracks and read sign and pick up on the more subtle stuff. You got to understand what the deer like and what they're doing that time of year. And, and you really have to scout more than you hunt. Like that's what I'm getting from this conversation so far. And, and like, I feel like it can kind of be boiled down to that as like, you got to, you got to scout more than you hunt and you got to, you got to know what you're looking for, man. Like you got to have those woodsmanship skills developed, hopefully from earlier in the year, which you develop from scouting a lot and, and walking the property and, and bumping deer. You brought up bumping deer several times in this podcast already and, and going out and just learning. So, I mean, would yeah, you say that's like, accurate? Oh dude, for sure. Like there's nothing like people get so bent out of shape about bump deer and it's, it's almost like, um, like there's, there's nothing wrong. Like, it's like when we talked, we like on the, the last discussion, Andrew, like you brought up a point about like, you know, feeling like a, you have a, a wasted hunt, right? Like, or, you know, being out there walking around and you're like, oh man, I'm wasting a day. It's like no day is wasted if you're in a, if it's a property that you have an intention of hunting again, or if you just want to whittle it away, like cut it off as a, as an option to continue as hunting, no time on it is wasted, right? Because you're taking note of what you're seeing, like. You know, so, so yeah, just like boots on the ground, talk, like looking through everything, like, you know, a couple of the notes that like I had down to like, just to reiterate is like making sure that you're, you understand your property, like first and foremost, like know your property, know where your core bedding areas are, know where your does are, where your buck is, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, know where like, like and and put a lot of prep like don't put as much emphasis on food as maybe the media will tell you put more emphasis on security um and visual and wind advantages for that buck um and then try to think about where he would be based on that structure of importance um and then kind of whittle it down from there and expect that he's probably going to live that last part of the season in a tiny core area like it could be the size of a football field or smaller that's where he's going to be you know he may be out doing all sorts of stuff at night but where you're going to harvest him is going to be in this small spot it's not going to be this myriad of locations it's a trail or two trails you know that he has a tendency to frequent absolutely jacob i've, I've got a question for you that i've been wanting to ask um because we still haven't talked didn't even talk about the whole uh 
secondary rut aspect, but what's the importance for you late season on uh, weather front changes, and weather just weather patterns and all that kind of stuff, or wind switches uh, and all that? Um, I think wind switches is great. I, I actually really like – so th- this year specifically – well, this year and last year, I really like when you when we come off of like a warm front that shifts to a – north wind or a north wind that shifts to a warm front like the tail end or like a, you can hunt pre-front like big pressure pushes i think that those will always be good where your big temp drops or a big rainstorm comes through and you have a big temp drop inherently you're going to be good there but really i think bed switches are really good this time of the year that's what i like where like if you know let's say let's say for three or four days you've got a south wind or a west wind that's blowing warm air in and all of a sudden you have a hard north wind that comes in and shifts midday or early afternoon or, um, you know, those deer are going to change. They've consistently been doing one thing for three days. You can kind of try to forecast how they're going to change their approach to that and then set up on it in a way that gives you the benefit of the doubt. You know, so I, I love wind switches. If you can get them to play to your, to your accord, it's just, it's kind of like situational. Um, so yeah, I would take advantage of them if they're there, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ignore those or ignore fronts. Um, I think that, I think the bigger thing is just, is just like your weather patterns in general are gonna, are just going to push your deer around. Um, you know, so, you know, it's like, if it's, I don't know, we don't deal with much snow here in North Carolina. So it's really just like rain and torrential downpour or it's dry and cold or hot, dry and hot. <laughs> so for me, the, you know, in another area of the country where you might get a snowstorm that comes in, that may be different, may affect those deer differently. Um, here in the South, I don't know about Alabama, but in North Carolina, if we get snow here, our deer go bananas. They are like, we'll get like half an inch of snow and it's like deer everywhere. Like they're like all over the place. So um, yeah, I don't think there's, there's not a bad day to hunt in my opinion, this time of the year, like you, you, you aren't going to kill one by not being in the woods. Like, I think it's a whole lot less, um, you know, once again, going back to the fact that he's in that, he's in that likely fishbowl of a terrain, like, you know, area, because that's where he can stay safe. Um, you're probably not now, you're probably not in a bad way to hunt him regardless of the fact it's just whether or not you can be invasive um, is that's what your weather is going to tell you. If you have a bad wind, then maybe set up for an observation sit. You know, if you have a good wind, maybe you push in a little further. If it's like a really cold day and you think he's going to be late coming back to bed, like here in North Carolina, I'm sure it's this way in Alabama. When, when our temperature really drops, a lot of our deer will actually just, they'll like come off of the food source in the morning and they'll bed down and wait until that sun breaks first thing, like nine o'clock, nine 30. And then between like nine o'clock and 11, there's a lot of really good movement when it starts to warm up a little bit, they'll work their way back to like more of like a long-term midday bed. So versus like, they're not, they're still, it's like they're halfway between their travel route and they'll just kind of hang around. You know, they just don't want to move a lot because it's 22 degrees out. They're not used to that. They'll just bed down and they'll just hunker. Um, You know, so in that case, like if we get a super, super strong cold front, it's going to drop off into 18 or 20 degrees. I may try to push into a bedding area and go sit right where he's going to come to and then sit there until one in the afternoon and just be like, oh, he'll maybe he'll roll back in. 
you know, midday, but it's a lot of trial and error and you just kind of have to take it as it goes um, based on what you're seeing and what your specific state is. You know, I wouldn't do that in Virginia because those deer get colder weather than they do here in the Carolinas or down in Alabama. So let me, one of my last uh, questions I have, because I just don't want to leave this untouched for listeners that are curious. Um, is there any specific approach to hunting secondary rut, in your opinion, uh, for guys that are just curious? Because, like, we definitely have it around here. Like, I've seen really good activity, kind of where Andrew said he had it. I've seen really good rutting activity uh, mid-January on this place that ruts, you know, mid-December. Uh, and, and you know, good bucks bumping does that time of the year. So is there any strategy to that that, you know, is noteworthy for people that want to pay attention to that going into this season? I just think that areas where you have, I mean, I would be keeping, you know, when you're hunting in October or, you know, if you're, let's say you're in Alabama right now and you're hunting Maine, like the rut or, you know, pre-rut, depending on where you are, I would be keeping tabs on where your doe fawns are. Um, same thing at the early season, like where areas where you're seeing a high proclivity of doe fawns, like, are they there? Are they not there? Um, did you get a high survival rate in that area? Are you in an area with a large amount of cutovers where it's going to house a large number of deer? Um, some properties may have a large abundance of deer, um, but for whatever reason, those more mature does will just push the other ones off. Like I've got a couple pieces of public where it seems like there's only ever like year and a half and two year old deer, like on the doe side of things um, or older. And then the yearlings just kind of shoved off and they have to go fend for themselves versus you have other places that just have an abundance of deer and you end up with a ton of doe fawns mixed in with your more mature deer. And, you know, in the midst of them grouping back up, when those doe fawns come into estrus, they'll get kicked off or they'll go off on their own the same way those more mature deer will when they kick those fawns off in late October, early November. So just keeping track of what you're seeing and understanding what type of does are running in your bedding areas. Like if I have a property that's got you know, a bunch of mature does that typically throw doe fawns and those doe fawns hang around or they're staying grouped up. Um, or let's say in post rut, I'm seeing those does group back up with doe fawns. Um, I'm going to assume that those doe fawns didn't get bred and I'm going to keep running trail cameras um, on a mix of like trails and scrapes to see if like I can find out whether or not a doe fawn starts to come back in. Uh, and then jump in there in the middle of that. And a lot of that's annual data. Like, I don't want to, you know, act like I'm just pulling a card in the middle of December and being like, oh man, there's a doe fawn that's fired up here. It's more along the lines of like, okay, I ran a camera all season long or all December last year. And this window of time, there was a doe fawn or two doe fawns that were getting chased really hard on camera, like full out chasing December 17th kind of thing like that. Well, I'm going to go back and sit that area this year. Well, it probably won't be the same doe that's getting chased, but if they're dropping in that time frame every year and those does are going to cycle again in that window of time, it puts me in a higher odds position of catching that buck like in a year over year pattern where he knows, okay, hey, it's mid-December. Usually the does are going to come in again here. I'm going to come check this area and then he's working his way through there. So I would be t one, take note of your does specifically which which areas have doe fawns like young doe fawns um and then also understanding like what where like are you seeing spotted fawns in like september october um you know and that's going to push out even further you know or are you seeing you know yearlings that are dropping early um so but i feel like that's a lot of paperwork type of stuff almost like you kind of taking note of what you're seeing every day 
putting it in the notes section of your phone. You know, today I sat here, I saw four does and three yearlings. It's like, okay, cool. Well, that's a bookmark for me to come back and check this area in late December um, because those does may not have been ready to breed. Perfect. Awesome. Yep. That's exactly what I saw that, that time when I had that really good run activity with two nice bucks bumping some does, they were doe fawns as two mature bucks in a clear cut with two doe fawns. And those doe fawns were getting harassed by those bucks. <laughs> I'm yeah. talking about bad. And the only reason I didn't shoot one yeah. of the bucks is they, they were moving way too quickly at, at a pretty good distance for me to get a steady shot on them. Uh, but it was cool to see it. So that's, that's really good. And kind of, again, kind of taking tabs of where you've seen a bunch of doe fawns and they try to go back in there, you know, roughly a month or so after the rut and, and try to see if you, you know, start seeing that activity and potentially get, you know, lucky, find that one doe fawn in there that's got a nice buck on her. So, um, awesome. Well, Jacob, dude, I know we take up an absolute ton of your time, dude. We're at almost an hour and 40 minutes here. Um, Appreciate you doing the podcast again. Appreciate you sharing some knowledge. Hopefully we'll have some listeners write in with some listener success stories from this episode uh, as we kind of roll through January. And a lot of these guys, whether in Alabama, you know, I kind of go back to the guys in Arkansas and some of these other states, uh, Mississippi as well, um, who have a chance to hunt like a secondary rut, but also have a very long post-rut late season opportunity to kill bucks and be able to go out there and implement some things that we're talking about. Maybe they have success this year, or maybe they build the confidence to figure out some areas that they may try to target more so for next season. So uh, again, Jacob, appreciate you joining the podcast, man. It's been an awesome episode. Thanks guys. I appreciate you guys having me. Hopefully, uh, hopefully I didn't bounce around too much. I know, um, I know it has a tendency to ramble over here, so you have to bear with me and, um, you know, guys, as always, thank you so much for listening. And, um, you know, if you have questions, you can reach out to me. Um, I'm an open book. I'm happy to, to talk or brainstorm, um, constantly learning just like you guys are. Um, I listen to Jacob and Andrew on a regular basis too. So, um, you know, it's all about growth and learning over here. And, uh, just, I, I would say if I was going to leave everybody with anything, it's just don't, you know, and don't overthink stuff. Like even in the late season, just take things for what they're worth. Like read sign, um, make judgment calls, look for thick cover. Um, and then just try to emphasize, like, if I'm a deer, would I be here? Or is, you know, is there sign that's telling me that there is a deer here right now? You know, it's it, the later in the season it gets, the more, the more important that is, you know, you have to be where they are. Absolutely. Well, awesome. Well, Jake, appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Listeners, thank you for listening and video watchers, YouTube watchers. Thank you all for watching the podcast. It's been awesome kind of seeing some of that engagement over there. And listen, Jacob's last episode on YouTube had a ton of engagement from you guys. Y'all really liked it, left a lot of comments. So hopefully we'll have a bunch as well from this episode. Uh, and again, just appreciate y'all watching, appreciate y'all listening. And we'll catch you back here on the next episode from the Southern Outdoorsman podcast. And remember guys, Merry Christmas and y'all stay Southern. Y'all go ahead and write down the dates, June 28th through June the 30th. Go ahead and just mark those off your calendar so you can be at the Dalton Convention Center in Dalton, Georgia for the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard a, a ton of content from that expo last year that we posted. Uh, we talked about it a ton. Look, if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast, this show was literally made for you. It was literally designed 
for you, which means you're going to love it. You know, all the best companies in mobile hunting are going to be there. A lot of the best deer killers in the Southeast are going to be there. A lot of our past podcast guests are going to be there. It's just, it's going to be an incredible event. And hey, if you've been looking to either get into a saddle or maybe a mobile lock-on setup or just a different kind of tree stand setup, I'm telling you, it's worth the investment to go to this show because they're all going to be there and you, you will get to try all of them in person before you buy it. So you don't have to order something online and then wait for it and then try it when it comes in to see if you really like it. You're going to get to go put your hands on everything all in one day, test it all out and figure out exactly what works best for you and have it taken care of before deer season starts. So like I said, go ahead and put it on your calendar, guys. It's a no brainer. You got to be at the show. Again, it's Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. We absolutely cannot wait to meet you guys there and talk hunting. So we'll see you at the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo in Dalton, Georgia.